Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. Felt like that I couldn't accomplish it because I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't capable enough, I didn't have the right connections. But in reality, it was, I was only limiting myself. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, we're back another week. It's just Will, no Neil. Sorry for the technical difficulties last week. We weren't able to release an episode, but we're back this week with a quick intro, getting right into the episode. I just want to mention a few app news items related to the Appalachian Regional Commission. Some grant funding for ready local governments. It's a no-cost training to help government officials Better identify, secure, manage, and implement federally funded projects. With all the federal funds available right now, this is an awesome opportunity for governments throughout the region. After completion of the training, they also are eligible for $50,000 in funding to implement internal capacity building projects. So I wanted to mention it because the deadline to apply is February 29th. So if you're a local government out there, Check it out. We'll post it in the show notes. Also, we wanted to reiterate that the Appalachian Entrepreneurship Academy, the Appalachian STEM Academy, the summer academies that the ARC has, we've mentioned this before, but the deadline to apply is February 2nd. So it's just in a few weeks. If you know a high school senior or even a teacher that is eligible for those academies, for those programs, let them know the deadline's coming up February 2nd and get your applications in. One more small piece of news. Opportunity Appalachia, who we've had on the show before, they just had their launch webinar for the third round of funding just yesterday. They anticipate to fund approximately 30 projects. So if you know of a project in Kentucky, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia, Definitely check out the website. We'll post it in the show notes. The next application round opens February 8th, and it runs through April 12th. So you can get your applications in. It provides technical assistance to projects up to $75,000. So it's a really excellent opportunity to bring further investment to a project and to get it over the finish line. So check it out. Also, those states will be having their own outreach meetings coming up in the next couple months. You can find out that you're cl- the closest one and attend. Now we just want to get into the episode. We have a new author on the episode tonight for her new memoir, In Better Hands, an Appalachian memoir of healing and grace. 
I wanted to have her on the episode talk about her ins- inspirational story. So we're just going to dive right into it. Here we go. Well, I work for the city in a town where I grew up. Some days I run a backhoe, some days I run a dump. If I had other plans on my graduation day Then several years ago I guess I haul them all away Yeah, I haul them all away She told me she was pregnant on the day I turned 18 And I did what you're supposed to do I bought her a ring He didn't have to ask us But he asked us anyway and We stood up and said I'd do What else were we gonna say? What else were we gonna say? Well, I'm thankful for the things I have And all the things I don't And I've got dreams Some that won't. Most of the time, I just walk the line wherever it goes. Cause you can't hang yourself if you ain't got enough rope. On the episode today, we have a special guest, Brandy Cox. She is a mom an Appalachian small business owner in Wise, Virginia, and has spent time developing the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Wise while she was employed as the entrepreneurship coordinator at UVA College of Wise. Really the reason why we wanted to have her on the show today, she's a new author and her first book, In Better Hands, just came out this week. And we'll talk about it, but it's essentially a memoir that discusses how addiction adoption, death, and suicide affected her life trajectory and really her own journey from depression to self-belief. So, Brandy, we want to thank you for being a guest on our show and congrats on the book coming out. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here. As most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition, Neil and I, our family's big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We have this gigantic spread of appetizers before we actually eat the meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Well, I do have a favorite appetizer. It is bacon wrapped weenies, which I think is amazing. Um, (laughs) It's little smokies with bacon and um, brown sugar, so you can't go wrong with it. But my favorite all-time holiday meal is my mom's dressing. Or stuffing, you know, depending what area you're from. But that would be my all-time favorite. We've had people say stuffing or dressing before. People have talked about putting oysters in it. Is there any special recipe that your mom has? No, it is really simple. It is homemade cornbread that you bake and let set for at least 24 hours. And biscuits, the little cheap biscuits, the little round ones that come in the can of like 10 or 12. Um, Sage is probably what makes the dressing basically, but, um, it's my favorite thing. I used to help her make it. And, uh, now my daughter helps me and it just doesn't feel like the holidays without that 
particular dish. No, it's a very cool tradition. And if you've ever listened to any of our episodes, you know that we have a special interest in cornbread and biscuits. So you have the best of both worlds right there in your, in your stuffing. Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with it. I'm telling you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you maybe if you could just let our listeners know, I mentioned you live in Wise, Virginia, but you were born and raised in Eastern Kentucky. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Maybe, you know, yeah. where you grew up? So I grew up in Neon, Kentucky. That is in Letcher County. It's actually on the Virginia border. We're about 30 minutes, depending on how fast you drive from the Virginia border. I was one of the fortunate that grew up literally beside of my high school. There was one house in between us and my high school. So I did not ever get to drive to school or experience the parking lot kids, but I didn't have to leave the house until like two minutes before school started. Up on the hill, we had five, six neighbors and they really were like family. They had lived there for years and we came to expect them at every event. Anything that was going on, good or bad, they were there and we were the same way for them. So it was a really supportive, small little area up on the hill. And, you know, when we got snowed in, we would stay up there for days, it felt like. And if one neighbor went to the store, they would offer for if anybody else needed anything, if they were venturing off. So it was a great little place to grow up. I was able to watch all of our football games from the porch if I wanted to. We had a 4th of July celebration in Neon, which was, you know, the pinnacle of I guess, the year. Sometimes it was a two-day event. Sometimes it was a one-day event, depending on budget. But we could always watch the fireworks from from our front porch and see the crowd down there playing games. So it was a really cool little place to be. Yeah, I love that. We we talk about, we've had several episodes on the importance of small town celebrations and how important they are in Appalachia. If we said it once, we said it a hundred times. One of the reasons why we had this show is to dispel some of the misconceptions people have about Appalachia, but to also give Appalachians a voice that may not otherwise have one or a platform to tell their own story. So I wanted to ask you, you know, your book is essentially a memoir. So why did you want to write a memoir and maybe why now for your first book? Well, growing up, in eastern Kentucky has its advantages and disadvantages. Small town means two things. Everybody knows everything about you, both the good and the bad. And there's no, you can't keep a secret, basically. What had happened to my birth father was common knowledge with everyone that I grew up around. 95% were super supportive and amazing, um, did not judge me or my family for what had happened with my birth father. There were some that did, some that secluded us, you know, would say that I wasn't allowed to play with their kids or that I didn't come from a good family, which was totally untrue. As I grew up and watched how that affected me, feeling like that maybe I wasn't good enough because I listened to the few negatives and I have to emphasize the few negatives. I didn't go for what I wanted to do because I didn't feel like I was good enough. And it took me a long time to realize that what happened in my past or what other people said negatively about me or my family should not determine how I progress in my future, that my children deserve better and that I deserve better. And that's what I want other people to know. I know there are struggling families everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're from Eastern Kentucky or if you're from New York, we all have baggage of some sort. We all have a history and we've all made mistakes, but that doesn't mean we can't come back from them and live a life that we're meant to have. 
Yeah, that's a very powerful message. And uh, I'm assuming it's kind of what you want people to gather or grasp from your book. Uh, you know, I touched on a few things from your book. Do you want to dive into a little bit more about what you were talking about with your birth father or just maybe some of the major themes in the book? Yeah, so um, my birth parents were not married. They had been together off and on for around five years to the best that we can pinpoint it down. I will say that everyone in the story, the main characters have passed away. So I, we are going on information of here, some hearsay and estimations. But around five years, they were together off and on. Um, I was conceived at the time. They were not in a place to raise a child. So my paternal grandparents adopted me, started the process between three to six weeks old. They never cut my birth parents out. I always knew who they were. They were welcome at the house. In fact, my birth father lived with us off and on. He struggled with dyslexia at a very young age, which led him to act out in school because he was embarrassed. He did not want to be called on to read. He didn't want people to see it. You know, and that was in a time when Teachers were not, they didn't have what they have now. So I'm not blaming this on the teachers, but ultimately he didn't get the help he needed, partly because he wouldn't ask for it and partly because it wasn't there yet. When acting out stopped getting him out of having to do the schoolwork, he transitioned to the bully to start to scare people from picking on him or laughing at him or to get him out of class. At 10 years old, a family neighbor actually gave him alcohol to help him quieten the stress. And from there, he started drinking secretly. By the time he was a teen, he was already getting in trouble with the law. Fast forward, he did go through rehabs. It was small stints because he did get caught with alcohol and was discharged. He did go to jail or prison. But he ultimately, no matter what, he could not kick the habit. And there was two sides of him. There was the drunk rod, the drunk birth father, And then there was the sober one who was loving and wanted to be there and was good to us. And that's something I really try to shine a light on is that he was two different people. It was totally separate. You could not say he was all bad or all good because it was different. He struggled with it. He didn't want to be that person. I believe that wholeheartedly. It seemed like no matter what he did, he could not get it together. The one thing I will say, though, is he would get up and go to work. He would drink all night, but he would work the next morning. We were raised that you work if you crawl to work. And he did. Even when I was writing this, he, what he did, my father, well, his dad, who I refer to as a dad was a coal miner. He was, um, he also worked on a strip job. He worked for the town water department. So he kind of hopped jobs, but he always showed up. And then ultimately one morning, You know, he said to us, I can't stay anymore. I'm just hurting everyone that I love. It was in our home, the home that I was raised in, actually the home he was raised in for the majority of his life. And he did decide to take his life. We were there, me and my mom and a family friend that was like a grandmother to me were there when he did it. For years, I felt like that I'd done something wrong because I was the last person to see him. I struggled with a lot of what ifs. A lot of questions. I did go through a stage of being really angry at him because I couldn't understand why he would leave us. But as I healed and as I looked back and talked to a counselor and I think of the words that he said, he truly thought that was his only way out. He was not selfish. He was, he wanted the pain to stop for everybody else. That's incredibly overwhelming, especially for, for anyone, but for 
the family for a small child at the time. I, I can't imagine, you know, going through that. But, you know, being from App Appalachia, a lot of people often think about first poverty. They think about generational poverty, but also just generational circumstances and having to overcome those generational circumstances. Was that something that you thought about? Was that something that's part of your book, overcoming these generational circumstances to really, like you mentioned in your bio, um, you know, this belief in yourself? Is that something hard to overcome, especially coming from where we come from? I think it can be. I think that if we allow negativity to enter our mind that it is harder. You know, I felt like that I couldn't accomplish it because I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't capable enough. I didn't have the right connections. But in reality, it was, I was only limiting myself. You know, I feel like certain people will put you into a category. And if your family was on drugs, then typically that's what that child's going to grow up to do. Or if your family was in poverty, that's what they expect of that child. And I'm not saying everyone does that, but there are enough people that do that, that if you let those people have a front row to you, it will change your own perspective of yourself. So you really have to be careful who you let lead you if you're in that situation already, because there are teachers and there are guidance counselors and just people in the community that Oh, they're not going to, they're just going to be just like their dad, or they're just going to be just like their mom. Oh, their grades are C's and D's. They're not, you know, they just don't have what it takes. Instead of drilling down and talking to that child and being like, you know, you can do that, right? That does not have to be your life. What can we do to help set you forward? And I do think there is that judgment there, even if it's subconscious on some people. And that's why I think it's so important that everyone hears that story that, we can't have that mindset. It doesn't matter if that kid has been acting up for 10 years. We don't know what's going on at home. Maybe yeah. they need that extra help and that extra support and that understanding instead of just pushing them off and being frustrated at them. When you're in that situation, because I had good parents, my grandparents worked every day. They volunteered, um, did not drink, did not take drugs. They were the people that showed up at fundraisers, you know, walked me out on the field on homecoming. And I remember watching them. They didn't judge other people. They did not put that in my mind to judge other people. They may not have let me go to everyone's house that I wanted to go hang out at because they didn't think it was safe, but they never did not allow those kids to come to our house. And I think that's a part of it, too. I think parents are like, well, you know, her dad did this or her mom did that. I don't really want my kids around that. OK, so you're showing your kids to judge. You're showing <laughs> your kids to say that you're better. And that's how I feel. And I know that's very blunt. But instead, it should be like, yeah, why don't we let Susie come over and hang out today and see a different way to be? And if yeah. she does say something she shouldn't say, that's a great time to be like, well, you know, that's really not age appropriate because she may not know the difference. My life wasn't that bad. It was not to that degree, to some level, but I'm a voice for those that didn't have that voice at all is yeah. what I want to be. I think a large part of your book or one of the themes is around mental illness. And we've had several episodes on mental illness, especially in Appalachia and the prevalence of uh, mental illness, but also the lack of support. 
just meaning the lack of nurses, the lack of mental health care within our region. Is that something that you wanted to, this book, people to take from your book or, or to bring out a focus on mental illness with your book? You know, I do think that when I was growing up, we didn't talk about mental illness at all. No one in Appalachia does, right? It's no, just... no. It was like, you are not depressed. You are, you, you are fine. That's one thing that I want to bring up that depression, it's okay to talk about it and you should, because look at the stats of how many people are actually depressed and afraid to get the help they need. Number one. Number two, after my birth father committed suicide in front of me, I was never offered counseling. Like it, we literally just went back because it was something that just wasn't talked about or thought of. Do I think we need better? Yes. Do I think it is getting better? I really do because I am seeing more counselors pop up in this area. When I first started going to counseling, let's say my son is 16, 14 years ago, there wasn't a lot of counselors in this region. I actually drove an hour away, partly because I was embarrassed because I didn't want anybody to know I was going to counseling because that still was not okay to talk about that. Also, partly because there wasn't a lot. And the few that were here weren't well known because we didn't market them. We didn't talk about them. And I have noticed over the last few years, there are more and more places popping up. I'm seeing counselors now being more present on social media here locally, you know, during COVID, like offering stuff for the kids, offering stuff for the parents. So I have seen And as far as Wise County going, that people are stepping up now and caring and trying to do more, but we've got a long way to go. You have referenced Appalachia and the region, and you had referenced certain aspects of the region that maybe hold people back. But how has Appalachia shaped your journey? And has it held you back or has it made you into the person that you are today? Well, I think it has made me into the person that I am today. Being from Neon, I can't say this enough, our neighbors were like the best people in the world to me. I was depressed at the time, didn't realize it. It took me starting to heal and looking back. One neighbor took me to church. That wasn't easy for her, but she did that to help me and would sit on her front porch and let me just ramble about nonsense for hours. And never tried to rush me off, but was just always there to help when I wanted to be there. I had another set that would walk every evening. It was a mother, daughter, and daughter-in-law trio. And um, so many times they would let me tag along because I was lonely and I was bored. And they made me feel like the best person around, like asking about school and what was going on with this and really interested. That was one aspect. So when I look back, I realized I had support and I had people that believed in me. I watched them go off and be successful. One became a principal. One is teaching at a college now. So I saw that. And I saw that they believed in me when I was young and didn't have it all together. My parents were a member of the local fire department. And it was a volunteer base. And so you had the men and then you had the women's auxiliary. And at the time, that support, they gave us so much. My birth father's suicide was right after Thanksgiving into November. So his funeral was first week of December. So Christmas was really rough that year. But I remember everybody carrying in so much food and so many desserts and so many gifts that you would have thought that we had a department store in our house because that's how they showed love. I mean, you know, all the food, like 
the counters were running over with it. And then the very next year, who I call my dad, because they adopted me so young, had to have triple bypass surgery. And guess what? He was still trying to get his, you know, social security because back then he couldn't go back and be a coal miner with triple bypass surgery. So Christmas was hard that year, but we didn't notice it because the community came together and they were there. And those people, you know, through both of my parents' funerals, they showed up, they were there, they shared the stories. So I think that really shaped me to be a person that realizes there's so many good people here in Eastern Kentucky that are successful, that are compassionate. And you know what? They show up for the good and the bad. I think you and I know people from the region know that there's just, it feels like when you're from Appalachia, there's just a little bit of something different about it. Unless you're from there, you don't really know what we're talking about. But one aspect of the region is family and it's really important. But one of the, I'll call it a mantra from your book is kind of this idea of love over blood. Is that kind of what you're getting at when you're talking about community and the community that you formed and how important that is for you? Yes, because they all did become family. When dad had surgery, they were, some of them were sitting at the hospital with us. They were more than just friends or acquaintances. They helped to form us still today. One of them, the very first draft I wrote in my book, which was not a good draft, um, <laughs> read my book for me. She's the one that became the principal and came over to my house to talk to me about it. You know, it was just all these years later, there was still that connection and that bond. And in a sense, I kind of know that I can always go home and I know people are passing away and a lot is changing, but I still have some that are still there. And that's home. We've been interviewed before about doing this podcast and, and, people that interview us about Appalachia, the first thing they want to talk about or ask about are the challenges in Appalachia. And we always like to flip the script and first talk about the opportunities because that's what we see in Appalachia, the tremendous opportunities that are here. That's why we have our podcast to talk about the great things, uh, the great people in the region. So I wanted to maybe ask you, what did you see or what were the opportunities for you growing up and through your throughout your life journey? So growing up, we had Nan's dance studio in downtown Neon. Of course, it was Nan. And then we had Cheryl that was for Baton, that did training for Baton. And yeah, we learned dance and well, we kind of learned dance <laughs> and Baton, but we were learning to be a part of a group. We were learning to work together. Um, we were learning to take directions from other people besides our parents at a young age. It broke the monotony of being at home all the time. So that was something that I always looked forward to. I loved going, not that I was really good at any of it, but it was fun to be there with them and to still know that they gave up. I mean, yeah, they might've made a little bit of money, but they were not the hours they were putting in was because they cared about us and they wanted to help their community. So I always looked forward to that. I always looked forward to our festivals. I mean, it was a time that you could get together and eat all the great foods that people bring out to cook during that time. You know, we had the 4th of July and we had Mountain Heritage Days. And those days, Mountain Heritage Days, let you look back on what it had been like years before because the windows were always decorated with old timey stuff. We dressed in old timey gowns and bonnets as little kids. And 
you know, you think, well, they're not really taking anything from that, but we are. We saw the spinning wheels and saw the demonstrations and saw the different sizes of coal and things. And it really helps now looking back because I understand what my grandparents and great grandparents did to build that town up to be what I had. So those yeah. times were really special and it helped us to know that they busted their butts and they worked hard and they didn't complain. You are one of many voices of the of the region, you, you know, that, that have similar stories. And I love that you are now telling your story through your memoir. One thing uh, I wanted to mention, uh, you, your intro music uh, was, for the listeners that don't know, Chris Knight with the song Enough Rope. Uh, what's the significance of that song to your book, to your life's journey? So uh, talking about living with regret, you know, I, I did regret not going back and doing what I wanted to do in time. It really brought my dad to to my mind because of the lyrics. My dad that raised me was one of these men that um, worked up until the day he had surgery. He was hardworking and he believed in us and wanted us to do the best that we could. So he worked on days that he really shouldn't have. He was ran over by a coal truck when he was young and still went back in the mines so that his kids could have a better life. Sometimes it's hard looking back on that and thinking, maybe I didn't live up to everything he wanted as fast as he wanted me to, wishing I would have done stuff differently. But he was just someone that could put it together and never, never complain. He would volunteer at the fire department for hours. He would go on runs, then he would come home and work. He would work in sometimes two gardens, sometimes three, just so that we could do better. It didn't matter our achievement, if it was a C or if it was um, when I decided to go back to college, I will never forget how excited he was sitting there in that recliner when I told him I was going back for my bachelor's and a comment that he would always make when he would be proud of one of us. Well, daddy's head's going to swell so big. I'm not going to be able to fit through this door <laughs> because he lived, he lived for us. I mean, at the end of the day, he lived for us. You talked about writing this memoir for others that may not have a voice in the region. What advice would you give a young person or anyone who is struggling with their past or, or have, have their own self doubts? First of all, you have to let go of your own self-doubt and that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. Counseling, I think is amazing. When I first started going to counseling and I tell the story in my book too. So I went and I didn't think she would get me to open up as fast as she did. Well, she, I said far more than I thought I ever would on the first visit. And I was like, well, I am not going back to this lady. <laughs> I have said way too much and I should not be talking about my family or how I feel to someone like that. Well, as the week started going by, I was like, well, it's rude to cancel because no, she can't fill that appointment. So I keep going and I'll keep saying the same thing every week. I'm not going back next week, but I could not reschedule in front of her because that was rude. And I slowly got to where that was the best part of my week. I loved going and talking to her. So I do think that take the stigma away from counseling. It can be Hard, absolutely, but it can also be the best hour of your week when you really start to dive in and change and help. Don't allow others' negativity to hold you back. There's going to be some people that are depressed, some people that just cannot see your vision, and you cannot let them be the ones you listen to. You need to surround yourself with the people you most want to be like, the people that are going to cheer you on, even if your goal sounds outlandish or silly. 
because you're not going to be able to move forward if you've got negativity constantly in your ear and you're listening to them. You don't necessarily have to cut them out of your life. Just don't share all your goals with them. I do think some older generations are like, you get out of school, maybe you go to college, and then you work for somebody else. You don't start your own business. You don't write books. That's not for you. And that's not true. You can start your own businesses. You can write a book. You can do write a you know a musical album. You can do anything that you want to do if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to fail, and then pick back up and keep going. You have to let go of what you feel like you did wrong before anybody else can. Because you're your worst critic. At the end of the day, your negativity that you're speaking about yourself is the one that you can't turn off until you turn it off. It's there constantly. Tremendous and powerful advice, not only for our region, but for anyone. I wanted to give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find out more about your book. Where can they get your book and and any other upcoming media events you might have? So it is on Amazon. It's In Better Hands, an Appalachian memoir of healing and grace. The Kindle version and the paperback are both available. It just launched today. And you can also go to my website, which is brandycoxauthor.com. Weather permitting, we are going to have an event in Wise at El Dorado on this Saturday, which is the January the 20th at 630. Um, just kind of waiting to see if these eight plus inches or six plus inches of snow goes away for people to come out. I do have an event coming up in St. Paul that we're working on as well. And I'm open to other events whatever I can do to help get the message out to help change others' lives. That's great. And so people can contact you on your website, through your website? Yes. Perfect. This is a question that we don't necessarily ask everyone, but I wanted to ask you, biscuits or cornbread? Oh, biscuits. Oh. Now, if it's gravy. Now, wait a minute. If it's gravy, if I'm eating biscuits and gravy, it's always biscuits. Now, if we're eating normal food like fried potatoes and stuff, it's always cornbread Okay. in the cast iron skillet. All right, all right. What, what, about, both. what about with soup beans? Always cornbread? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Always cornbread. Yeah, yeah. And kraut. You have to have kraut, too. I like that. No one has ever mentioned that, but I, I'm a big kraut fan when, when we have soup beans. Yeah, my mom always had kraut when we had soup beans. That's, That's right. a good call. Good call. I appreciate that. Two questions that we do ask everyone. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Just the first thing when I mention the word Appalachia? Blue and green is the very first thing that comes to mind. Okay. And I know that's odd, but I think it's because I've seen so much push lately for healthy Appalachia and prospering Appalachia and all of it has been blue and green worked into it. And that's what I see now. You know, we talked about earlier talking about the opportunities and I think that that hits the nail on the head when you're talking about that prosperity, that blue and green. So that's perfect. You know, our podcast, it's kind of focused on or based grounded on uh, place and perspective place is really important to Neil and I. So we wanted to ask you just where do you call home? What makes it home for you and what makes it unique? Home is is where my family is now. It's where my children are and my husband. It's where our memories are, the photos from the past, plus the new experiences. It's a place that we keep the past present for our kids so that they know how we both grew up and what we had. But really, it's just a place that is free and encouraging and a lot of loud noise. (laughs) Thank you so much. That that was a great answer. And thanks for being on the show and talking about your past, talking about your 
future talking about your memoir and your new book and people, if you want to mention that website again, where they can uh, find out more about you and more about your book. Yeah, it is uh, Brandy, B-R-A-N-D-I Cox, C-O-X author.com. Perfect. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. want to quickly thank Brandy again for being on the show, talking about her life journey, talking about her new book, her memoir. Congratulate her on her new memoir coming out this week. You want to check it out again, you can check out her website, brandycoxauthor.com. Just want to end the episode tonight and mention, uh, quickly mention an app biz of the week. I know we talked about Opportunity Appalachia in the intro and i know when you think of projects that they might fund you think of government projects government buildings but they also fund private projects private opportunities one of those private businesses that they funded wataga meats and butchery so wataga butchery has been around for a minute but they also are starting the development of a 6,000 square foot building into a meat processing facility in the high country of North Carolina, just outside of Boone, Carolina, Boone, North Carolina, in Zionville. It will be a meat processing facility that produces high quality smoked and cooked meat products. And then the second phase will also improve food security in Northwest North Carolina and expand regional processing capacity for farmers. So it's a really cool project. We wanted to mention that as just one of the businesses that can be funded through Opportunity Appalachia, and that is providing a technical assistance to get really help their project get to the finish line. Just for reference, their website is Wataga, W-A-T-A-U-G-A, Butchery, B-U-T-C-H-E-R-Y.com. Thanks again to Brandy for being on the show. And I guess we'll finish it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.